This week's TribCast is sponsored by Texas Woman's University is focused on making Texas healthier, offering more than 80 health-related degree programs from nursing and physical therapy to kinesiology and nutrition science. Learn more at twu.edu health. And the Beer Alliance of Texas. Texas law allows three-tier compliant ordering platforms for home delivery of alcoholic beverages, ensuring safe and quality products for consumers. Visit BeerAlliance.com to learn more. Hello and welcome to this week's TribCast. My name is James Barragan. I am a politics reporter here at the Texas Tribune. I'm filling in for our editor, Matthew Watkins, who's out of the office today. Um, in today's TribCast, we have uh, higher education reporter Kate McGee. Hello, Kate. Hello, happy to be here. And our urban uh, our urban affairs reporter jo- Joshua Fector. Josh, did I get that right? Is that, is that your title? It's good. It's good to know uh, when your coworkers <laughs> know your title and how to pronounce the last name. So that's, that was refreshing. <laughs> we're, 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 we're off to it. We're off to a great start. <laughs> during this. Um, uh, during this week's tripcast, even though we've got on gotten off to a lighthearted start, we're going to be dealing with some heavy topics. Obviously, the main issue of conversation in Texas politics and policy is still the Uvalde shooting um, and the aftermath of it. The response. Um, we will be talking with Kate, who has been covering the the hardening, quote unquote, the hardening of schools. The response by state lawmakers to arm more teachers. Uh, provide more school resource officers um, to try to prevent these shootings. And then the second half of the show, we'll talk with Josh about um, the law enforcement response, which has raised a lot of questions now since there has been a a back and forth um, in the weeks since and some some contradictions and and where it all goes from now. I think it's it's fair to say that there's a a crisis of confidence in, in, in the response right now. So Kate, let's start off with you. You, you wrote a story, um, in the days almost immediately after the the shooting, looking at this policy uh, approach that we have here in Texas of hardening the schools, that seems to be a good way um, that our Texas lawmakers try to approach this because it involves, you know, it is a pro-gun sentiment. Um, it, it, it goes in with the good guys um, are, are the way to stop the bad guys with guns. Um, and it's it's not so politically difficult to get through. Um, but talk to us, you know, in your story, uh, one thing that it stood out to me was like the, you know, how efficient these policies are, whether they're actually working or not, and what do the experts think um, about such policies in the overall conversation of preventing these kinds of mass shootings? Yeah, so... Unfortunately, I mean, the state has another school shooting to kind of look to to see, um, you know, how lawmakers respond to this kind of um, of situation. And a lot of the school safety hardening uh, measures that lawmakers are promoting now, you know, they promoted after the Santa Fe shooting in 2018. And in 2019, the legislature passed a sweeping set of school security bills um, because the governor 
put out, you know, these 40 recommendations of things to do to improve school safety. And as you mentioned, it was, you know, improving the actual buildings, but also suicide prevention programs, better mental health, um, arming school teachers with guns uh, through the school marshal program. So it was kind of a wide ranging set of things to do. Um, and they passed this one law, SB 11, which included a lot of, of those um, requirements and, and required school districts to have these plans in place to start doing these behavioral threat assessments of students who they might see to be a risk. Um, and the school districts in turn over the last few years have, um, have been implementing these. You know, I think a big wrinkle here was this started in 2019 and then school districts were hit with the pandemic in 2020. And so they've been able having to implement these school safety programs and, um, you know, harden these schools at the same time that they're dealing with this massive pandemic. So a lot is going on in the schools in, um, after 2019. But what we you know one of the things that the the bill did was required the texas school safety center to basically say hey like go and look at these school districts plans and see if they're actually um viable like what are what are the plans in place and a lot of these school districts did not have viable plans um and do not and in terms of their broad emergency operations but specifically with active shooter plans which is a requirement um so there's already a sense that the schools um, just do not have the plans in place that they are supposed to um, based on these kind of best practices that the state has for how to, to implement a plan like this. So it seems like it, it's, it's, it's been since 2019. Um, so on the one hand, there was all this money, there, was all, there were all these requirements about what they had to do in terms of preparedness for this kind of uh, shooting or you know, mass violence event. On the other hand, you know, they have been dealing with COVID-19 and they have been dealing with a bunch of other issues. Um, so it does seem, you know, we sort of, the same thing that we're always talking about when we talk about these issues, you know, we put so much on teachers, we put so much on police officers, but putting that aside, I guess, when you talk to the experts, what do they think of these policies in terms of preventing mass shootings? I mean, do, do they find that it's effective? Is, is there enough research on this or where are we on that? Experts really say, you know, when we're talking about school hardening, we should even say like that means um, there are like that could be a variety of things that could be making sure that all your exterior doors lock and are, are not able to, you know, people can not just come in and out of any access to a school. It means adding these vestibules in the entrance of a school. So there's like a basically like a lobby waiting area for visitors to kind of have to wait in so they can't just get direct entry to a school. It also means, you know, arming a teacher or arming a school staff member. Um, and so a lot of these things honestly have been implemented in schools for years. Schools have always been locking exterior doors and having people come through the front. This is not like a new concept that schools are not really using. Um, and researchers have looked over the years um, at how these different measures have worked and have found for the large, for the large part have not really reduced gun violence and have not reduced or made like large changes to the to an impact of gun violence in schools. Um, and part of it is because a lot of these things are being done already and we're still seeing these mass casualty events happening in schools. Uh, Uvalde 
ISD in particular had a long list of security measures in place. You know, they did have locked doors. They had a locked classroom door policy. They had school resource officers. They had perimeter fencing around the schools. Um, and still we were, the, the gunman was still able to gain access to the school. And so these researchers and experts say that these things, you know, might, they're not doing what their intended purpose is when lawmakers say we need to harden these schools and that's going to be the solution to all of this. Yeah, that's an interesting point and something that stood out to me um, because now Governor Abbott has uh, issued his call for, you know, the ISDs, uh, school districts and schools to sort of issue random checks, right, go around their schools and see if the, the doors are locking, all that stuff. Obviously, all that in the context that, you know, while at first law enforcement authorities sort of pointed to this teacher leaving the door open, that has now been proven not to be true. She actually did go back and close that door. Problem is that the, the door, for whatever reason, and we don't know why yet, but it wasn't locking. Um, so, I, I mean, it's interesting. And I think on it's difficult for people to understand because this is a complicated subject, but like on the face of it, obviously locking doors is going to help, right? It, it does help to a certain extent. But the problem is that, you know, we are living in an imperfect world and, you know, there are going to be ways that people get inside one way or another, you know, um, what if they're students and they already made it through, um, you know, what if there's a malfunctioning lock like there seems to have been in this case. Um, and the hardening of schools, it seems like from, from your reporting doesn't really address the other issue, which is like the actual access to guns and, and from my reporting as a political reporter, we see that there's no real will from the Republican majority in the state to tackle that issue because it's a, it's a fraught one for them. It's not clear why, because the majority of voters um, actually support at least limited um, uh, gun, gun safety measures. Um, but another thing that stood out to me from, from your reporting, Kate, uh, was that they don't, like the schools don't have the plans. And we talked a little bit about why that is, you know, COVID-19, but did you come across in your reporting? Is that what people were saying? Like we, we, we just didn't have time while we were dealing with COVID or is it just, I did see someone else in that story mention that like, you know, we can't just pay attention to these things and to these requirements in, in the aftermath of the shootings. And then we just forget about them, which it, you know, that happens with a bunch of laws. We, we pass laws in the legislature and then you check in on it five years later and say, oh yeah, what happened with that? And nobody knows. So I wonder what the answer is here. Is it just people were busy with COVID or is it a little bit of this as well? The other aspect is also that, you know, these emergency operation plans are really big and kind of sprawling things with lots of requirements that schools have to be able to do. There's like five grouping or five steps that schools have to be able to show that they are prepared for. Um, it's like prevention, mitigation, preparedness, response and recovery. And so, you know, with a, the Texas School Safety Center executive director said in a lot of cases, schools didn't have all five in place. So maybe they were really prepared or they had a good re recovery plan, but their response was not so much. And so it's making sure that they have all five of those steps in place. Um, and so that's what she said since they've done this audit um, in 2020 during the pandemic, um, they've been working with schools over the past year and a half to kind of get everyone up to, up to speed so that um, they have all these plans in place. Um, but it's, you know, I think another thing that kind of complicates all this is 
these people and people who work in schools are educators. Like they're not trained to be responding to emergencies the same way that law enforcement is. And so we're asking them to do something that they actually haven't really been, we're actually, we're asking them to create these plans for things that they've actually never been trained to respond to. And so it takes a lot of coordination and a lot of research. And, you know, that's why the Texas School Safety Center exists in a way is to provide these best practices. But you know, there's over a thousand school districts in this state yeah. and they all have competing demands and needs. And so it's um, yeah. it's hard to get everyone on the same and page. It, it is. I mean, if you if you try to issue a safety report like that, it, it is unfortunately it is like one of these like really boring, like difficult, like just basically grunt work that you have to do on top of everything else, else that you're doing, which I think plays a role in this that, you know, educators or educators and administrators are so busy with all these things. It's like, okay, well, that's kind of the least of their priority until it becomes a top priority. And then people like you and I are checking on whether it's ready. But the other thing that I wanted to point out that you reminded me of is that there's only something like 200, 200 something people that have actually, or teachers who have actually signed up to be part of these programs where they are allowed to carry the gun in and respond. And if you could, and, and they lifted the cap on that, I think after one of these legislative sessions, but if you right. can talk about that and just like, uh, I think I saw a story in the Dallas Morning News about one one educator who took the training and then realized this this is not for me. This is not what I want to do. If you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, the state created the school marshal program <clears throat> after Newtown. So they basically said, um, you know, if you take 80 hours of training and, and this requisite kind of mental health um, exams, you're cleared to have a gun on campus. Um, and school boards can determine, like, you know, if that has to be in a lockbox or if you carry it on your person. Though most schools, I think, we're putting them in lockboxes um, too to have them, you know, when, when they have a marshal on campus or decided to use this program. Um, but yeah, I mean, in the almost 10 years since that program was put in place, only 84 school districts have elected to have a school marshal. And in that time, right now, it's about 256 school marshals across the state. Um, so it's a sliver of the, the school districts who are taking this on or using for, this for, program. For context, how many school districts do we have here in Texas? about 1200. Oh, wow. Yeah. So we have 1200 school districts. Yeah. I mean, we have almost 350,000 teachers in this state. Um, and so, you know, to have about, and you know, it doesn't have to be just teachers. It could be any school staff member can be a marshal, but just to give context, having, you know, 250 marshals is not, it's, it's a drop in the bucket. And that's why, you know, Abbott is saying, you know, he tasked the Texas Education Agency this week with finding ways to encourage more school districts to use marshals. But um, teachers, for the majority, have been like vehemently opposed to it for a variety of reasons. A lot of it just being like logistical. You know, if you have a, a gun in a lockbox in your school and an active shooter comes in, you don't really have time to go unlock this gun and try and stop this shooter. Um, there's just like a host of issues that teachers raise with the program. Um, yeah. That hasn't as to why they don't want to do it. Yeah, and Josh, we're going to talk a little bit more about the law enforcement response here. But I don't know what what have you heard in terms of, you know, in my reporting on this as we look at what solutions can come uh, after this in terms of trying to prevent or at least minimize future mass shootings. Have you heard anything in terms of following the law enforcement response of? The law enforcement response here, my understanding from our reporting is that the U, U, U Valde school district 
had training for this. And I mean, they have uh, a police agency, right? Yes. So, so we know that um, they had recently had training to, to handle active shooters and that uh, the ISD police chief, Pete Arredondo, had had it as recently as December. They had had uh, a uh, training in March, as, as far as I understand. Um, and, you know, I've been talking to uh, local police departments, police chiefs, in, in kind of smaller towns uh, at this, you know, the past couple of days. And, you know, you can kind of sense that, that people are a little bit hesitant to, 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 to say anything bad about what happened in Uvalde. Um, people want to, they want to close ranks. They, uh, they want to put on a good face and say, hey, we're prepared for, uh, you know, we're prepared for this sort of thing and that we get training. Um, and a lot of what I'm hearing is, is, is folks saying, we don't understand like what happened in Uvalde. Like we are trained to uh, go in. If there's an active shooter, you were trained to go in and do everything you can to incapacitate the shooter. Um, and, you know, hopefully our officers would, would, do everything that they could but we can't really guarantee that at this point like you don't you can have all of the training in the world and you don't know how exactly that's that's going to translate in the moment when the bullets are flying and when there's a when there's a gunman on the campus right and these are small town police agencies um, with small town police pay probably if you really think about it uh, which is another issue and we're expecting them to be basically like military commandos and go in there and uh, handle a, a very, very dangerous situation. Um, so we'll talk more about the law enforcement response, but first we're going to take a break and hear from our sponsors. Texas Gulf Coast Community Colleges. The nine Texas Gulf Coast Community Colleges are training Texans for high-demand careers in leading industries. Find out more at gulfcoastcc.org. And Mexico. More than just a neighbor. For timely cross-border insight, turn to former U.S. Ambassador Antonia Garza at TonyGarza.com. And we're back and here to talk a little bit more about the law enforcement response. Josh Fector, urban affairs reporter. Um, we were just talking about the law enforcement response and the difficulties that you know some of the police agencies in Uvalde faced. We're talking about how they're you know they're. Or, you know, a rural small town police agency, often they are um, small agencies, um, often, uh, you know, they have the, the pay of small agencies, which is, is not very high, although it looks like in Uvalde, they have a considerable police department, which is understandable from a, a conservatively run government. Um, but overall, can we just start off, Josh, with sort of some of the, the back and forth, and we don't need to harp on it, but there clearly has been a lot of confusion, right? There was information given out um, in the day after the shooting by state officials, by the DPS director, Stephen McCraw, about the timeline of the shooting, um, that there was a school resource officer that in engaged the shooter, um, that there was this teacher who left the back door open or something like that. And a lot of that information has now proven to be false. And one of the main things I think that strikes people is that Governor Abbott and, and other state lawmakers really praised the law enforcement response, said they could have, you know, it could have been a lot worse, I think is what he said. 
if these uh, law enforcement officers hadn't immediately run and stopped this. But of course, later we found out that it took more than an hour for police officers to actually engage the shooter. Can you talk a little bit about that? The miscommunication, I don't even know if we want to call them miscommunications. I mean, how do we even phrase that? I mean, it's, it's just been a really stunning back and forth of inaccurate information provided and it looks like there's now a fight between the local police agencies and dps and and i think there's claims that now the police chief peter redondo wasn't uh responding to investigators but he says he is where where are we right now where does all this stand well you basically summed it up uh so, <laughs> so um you know it, it it's been confusing it's been chaotic uh, you've had all of this sort of misinformation flying around, a lot of it from, you know, the, the top law enforcement officials in the state, um, you know, and, and you, you did have, in, and it's to be expected that, like, during or in the aftermath of this kind of mass shooting, like, you're going to have a certain amount of, you know, facts coming out, timelines changing, um, and, you know, everything that we're kind of seeing right now, is, is kind of, as far as when I talk to people, like, they, they feel like this is very far outside of the norm. Uh, you have uh, different law enforcement agencies, you know, pointing the fingers at each other. Uh, you have, you know, state of, you have Governor Abbott coming out and uh, the day after the shooting comes out and praises the law enforcement response, says, like, everyone acted quickly, that they, that they tried to neutralize uh this guy and you know it would have been a lot worse without him uh without the without the uh, officer response and you know in the days after um you know we started to get this uh this portrait of of how exactly this went down and there's still a lot we don't know uh but what we do know is that the officers took more than an hour to respond as he said um which you know once you know, the governor learned about that, you know, says, says that he was misled, um, says that he was livid to have been misled. Uh, you had DPS. Um, I, I, you mentioned that, you know, the, uh, there was this line that somehow got into the mix where a school police officer was said to have confronted the gunman when they first arrived on campus. That didn't turn out to be true. There was no school police officer on campus when uh, the gunman first arrived. Uh, the uh, then on then last week, uh, the head of DPS, Steve McCross, said that the gunman entered a back door that had been propped open by a teacher, and the DPS then walked that back. Uh, you had, and, after, and that was after a lawyer for the teacher said that that absolutely was not true. Uh, and so, I mean, it's just this very chaotic environment. It's, it's hard to know, like, what exactly is, is uh, you know, where all of this is, is coming from as, as sort of this unfurls. Like, I, I still have, I still want to know how exactly they got the impression that there was an officer on campus already with, that had confronted the gunman, for example. So, I mean, it's, it's just this chaotic sort of environment that we're in right now. And we've also kind of graduated to kind of this, this era of finger pointing in, in this investigation. Um, you know, DPS 
earlier this week said that they hadn't heard from the police chief of the school district, Pete Arredondo, in two days, and that he was, you know, not being responsive to their request for like a follow-up interview in their investigation of how all this played out. He, uh, <laughs> he, 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 he came back and said that's not true. He told a CNN reporter uh, that had kind of staked him out, um, that he had been talking with them every day. So it's, it's, it's just this constant churn and, 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 and a lot of sort of like people pointing fingers at each other. Yeah, it's been, it's been pretty stunning. And I think, uh, you know, answers have to come from somewhere. Right. Um, and, and I think there's a lot of, um, there's been a lot of good reporting about the inconsistencies um, in the timeline. Um, a lot of people have spoken. There's a video from some of the parents, um, you know, saying that people weren't engaging. A lot of that has come to light, and it's really unraveled very quickly. But you know, there are still so many unanswered questions. Um, part, part of it being like, how did these, how did some of this inaccurate information get into like the the, the public, you know? the public conversation about this obviously it came from some state officials at, at some point but they have must have gotten it from somewhere and so i think there are questions about where that information came from who is at fault there um and you know politicians never want to say well you know someone's at fault but i mean the bottom line is that there are there is someone i mean there are people at fault here and and the public deserves to know where do you think those answers are going to come from josh is is there any indication of that so my sense is obviously that i mean the department of justice is looking into uh is basically doing an investigation of how this all played out dps is doing an, an investigation uh you have this house committee uh that was announced by house speaker dade phelan today to look into how all of this played out um so it it sounds like you know we're we're going to have a couple of avenues uh through through which we're going to you know, hopefully, you know, find out more about what actually happened. Um, because you, you have, you have so many blind spots, but you also know a few things at this point, right? You know, we know that essentially, you know, there was this hour gap that, that, or more than an hour from the time that officers first learned of the shooter to when you know they breached the classroom and took him out, uh, we know that the ISD police chief basically decided to treat this and uh, treat the gunman as a barricaded suspect, basically somebody who who they were in a standoff with, uh, rather than an active shooter, uh, because he believed that there were no students who were in danger at that point. Um, even though he was barricaded in a classroom, uh, in two adjoining classrooms. Uh, and so you, all, you also have this component where, you know, you had somebody who had had that training, but, you know, for whatever reason, uh, that training did not kick in. It, it basically what, what happened is that he, he reverted to basically pre-Columbine kind of training when it comes to dealing with an active shooter. And you know, a lot of the answers for, you know, why he made that decision, or, I mean, the answers for why he made that decision are going to have to come from him. Our, our, but, you know, as our colleague Zach Despard um, uh, reported, you know, a couple of minutes before we, we got onto this uh, record here, he's basically in hiding. 
um, they've basically gone into full sort of batten down the hatches sort of mode. Um, Peter Adondo was uh, he was he was sworn into city council. He he had won election recently, and you know he's he was voted onto the city council and he was sworn in in secret uh, this week. Uh, you know he's he's basically in hiding in in Uvalde. He's you know depending on who you believe he he may or may not be talking to DPS investigators. He may not be cooperating with them. Um, you know there are there's law enforcement surrounding his house according to Zach's reporting, um, and so. I mean, and he has so far not been willing to to speak to the press or give any sort of uh, give any sort of understanding for 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 the decisions that he made. Um, right. So, yeah, I mean, we're basically, you know, there's a couple of avenues, but I mean, they're going to have to come straight from the source. And that's Peter Ardando. Yeah, and I think this sort of highlights the role of, you know, um, the public's ability to record events that we've now come into with like Facebook Live and camera phones and videos and stuff like that. Um, and also the role of the press here, you know, we were told something at the, at the first press conference the day after and through some pretty dogged reporting along with the documentation by just everyday citizens of what had happened, you know, this, this story had started to unfold. So I know, you know, there's, there's a debate right now happening about how to cover mass shootings. Um, but I think we shouldn't lose sight of, in all of that, there are some criticisms of how to cover mass shootings. Obviously, you want to be respectful of it. But in terms of the transparency and accountability, I think the press has a role here in terms of questioning whether and how these things actually happen that we are seeing right now. Um, and then, of course, you know, you know, it's the fourth estate, we can only do so much and bring it to like, then other people, public officials have to do their part. We talked about the Justice Department investigation, the Rangers investigation, now the House Committee investigation, which is being led by um, uh, Dustin Burroughs, a Lubbock Republican who's an attorney, uh, Joe Moody, a Democrat from El Paso, who's a former prosecutor, um, and then Eva, Eva Guzman, uh, former Supreme Court Justice and nominee for uh, Republican Attorney General, um, who just lost their bid um, earlier this year. But I mean, those are some pretty high-powered lawyers, and it's going to it's going to be interesting to see what they what they turn up. Um, but I, I think it was just worth it's just worth noting that you know sometimes politicians are chummy, especially in small towns like this. Um, and like I said, politicians don't like to point the fingers, right? But somebody has to give accountability. Um, I think the press's role in this has been very important. So I, I think your work has been has been really good, Josh. Um, and and we'll we'll see how it unfolds. We'll see how it unfolds. But I guess I'll ask both of you. It seems like we've gotten to the point right now where it's like finger finger pointing from different law enforcement agencies. It's also like a, a lot of the you know, initial stuff that didn't add up has come out now. And it seems like now people have shut down, right? The, you know, Arredondos may or may not be talking to investigators. Um, lawmakers are, you know, are waiting for the investigation. Even the ones who are not waiting, like Senator Roland Gutierrez, who represents Evalde, he says he's getting stonewalled in terms of finding out information. That's probably because the investigation is ongoing. But, I mean, how long do you all think it's going to take for folks to get answers at this point. My sense is that, you know, the the quick churn has really come to an end, um, but these families still want some type of answer. So um, 
Josh, Kate, what do you guys think? How long will it be uh, before we get these answers? I hate to be cyn super cynical, but I feel like we have an election in November and I think that the House committee is going to be very aware of how hmm. the response or what, whatever they unfold is going to play right. out um, in that timeline. I think, you know, these committee investigations take months. And so I would anticipate we're waiting a while for that. Um, but some of these answers about what Josh said about just basic answers of why, why was there so much confusion in the beginning seem like pretty easy answers to be able to, to get fairly quickly. And I think, you know, there's been so much trust eroded from the, just with all of this confusion already um, that I think the longer people wait, um, the worse it's going to to be to, to get those answers to, to yeah. the families and the, the Uvalde community in particular. You know, yeah. we we move on and the world moves on, but I think in that particular community, it's, it's just going to let um, resentment fester the longer they yeah. wait. I think the, the election is important context. So thanks for bringing that up, because you, know, you know, that is another thing that politicians will want to be thinking of. Uh, but you know, another thing in this, the House Speaker has also indicated his support for ending the, um, what we call the dead suspects loophole in the Texas public records law, which could lead to the release of some of the body cam, some of the 911 calls, some of the records that could shed some light on this. And those could be released you know, tomorrow if, it's in, if the law enforcement agency was interested. So um, those are good thoughts there. Josh, I'll let you have the, the last word here. When do you think we'll see some answers? Um, I unfortunately, uh, I think you and, and Kate summed it up pretty well. Um, I, I, I would be shocked if we heard anything substantive before the election, at least out of, you know, the House Speakers Committee. Uh, you know, I, I think we're, we are very much in sort of like there was there was kind of this onslaught of, of information coming out coming from all of these various sources coming from these top officials i think they've learned now that they that you know to kind of stop doing that because they perhaps don't have uh you know they, they perhaps don't see an upside to doing that anymore anytime they they put something out you know and it could be bad information to, right yeah it could be well, bad information. well um, you know, they, they come out and they, they put something out and then, you know, somebody yells at them and finds out it's not true. And, and, you know, that's, 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 that's a normal turn, but at this point it, it is kind of slowing to a trickle. Um, but, you know, we are, we are still going to keep learning about it and drips and drabs. I mean, just before we started recording, I think actually while we were recording, um, New York Times came out with a story that said Peter Arredondo didn't even have a police radio when he arrived on campus. That's, um, so we're just going to keep, and, and these kinds of things are, are going to keep coming out. But as far as sort of like big definitive answers, a comprehensive telling of like what went wrong where, and who's going to pay the price for that? I'm not sure if we're going to see that anytime soon. Yeah, yeah. Well, I know you all will stay on top of it, and it's an important story. Uh, Kate, Josh, thanks so much for joining me uh, this week on the TripCast. I appreciate you all. Thanks, James. And uh, that is our TripCast for the week. Um, I'd like to thank our sponsors, the Texas Women's University, the Beer Alliance of Texas, 
Texas Gulf Coast Community Colleges and Ambassador Antonio Garza. Thanks so much and talk to you all next week.